listeners, this is Charu Sharma from Silicon Valley and you're listening to Drive Your Career. We invite the most impressive humans to chat about finding success and fulfillment in their careers. We are proud to launch our show with a women's special season where our first 10 episodes will feature some extraordinary women. Naomi, thank you so much for making time for this. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So Naomi is the founder and CEO of Tribe, a, a professional skill development company uh, based out of Silicon Valley. Naomi, can you tell us a little more about Tribe? Yes, absolutely. So Tribe is rethinking, remaking the professional learning experience to do something that I think we all know we need when we learn any skill uh, is to incorporate practice in how we do it. Uh, we think of working with Tribe as you know, a lot like getting any professional skill development, you know, you go to a great training, but then it comes with you after that in the form of practice. And so it feels a lot like getting a Fitbit along with your workout at the gym. And uh, that's really how we learn is one by getting exposure to great new ideas and how to do things excellently, and then getting the opportunity to practice and get that feedback that we all need to develop and grow and master the skills that we want to be great at. That sounds amazing. And I love the analogy of Fitbit. Um, so I've known Naomi, for the listeners who don't know, um, I've known Naomi for, I believe, four or five years. We met during our time at LinkedIn. And I think one of the first things I heard about you or noticed about you was how invested you are in developing people. And not just developing people, you, but, but you went out of your way to really open doors for people. So I know that you're just all about developing people and, and helping us all become our best versions. Um, so I think it's so apt that someone like you is leading a company like this. Absolutely. Uh, you've hit on what I think of as being my life's mission. I really hope in my life or the legacy I want to leave is uh, really helping people to to be their best selves and to see the potential that they're all capable of. And uh, in my perfect world, we're all able to reach the dreams that we have uh, by being able to build the skills and get the access that we need to be successful in, in accomplishing our dreams. Absolutely. So um, you have a very interesting career trajectory. You got a degree in mechanical engineering from MIT. Then you worked in consulting, finance, sales strategy, and most recently, you started your own company, Tribe, two and a half years ago. So um, you've achieved depth in each of these things you've done, and yet, you, know, you weren't afraid to switch lanes uh, at various times in your career. So during your career, how did you know that it was time to switch a lane? And then when you do that, how do you set yourself up for success in a new role that you haven't done before? Yeah, so uh, one thing is that it, it switched for me how I how I switch lanes. So when I first started my career, I uh, I was fortunate in that I just when I was leaving MIT, I saw the very famous, now very famous, I think, uh, Steve Jobs graduation speech. Are you familiar with it? The one where he talks about yes. staying hungry, hungry and mm -hmm. staying foolish. In, uh, you know, when I was growing up in India, we actually had a a whole chapter on his speech in our English textbook in tenth grade. So no uh, very familiar with it. Very okay. Well, I was extremely lucky because I heard it literally as I was graduating. Wow. And he talked about how. If you follow your passions, things will make sense in hindsight. 
And I took that to heart. I thought, you know, I'm going to follow my passions and hope that things make sense in hindsight. So when I first started switching lanes, uh, I was really focused on, am I passionate about what am I, what I'm doing? Am I growing in this role? And am I, and am I picking up the skills that feel really interesting and meaningful to me right now. So I saw myself as, as educating myself. So at, at McKinsey, I was learning, uh, I was learning business and I was learning it in an applied way. When I went to Pixar, I felt I was learning creativity and how to, uh, you know, the idea of creativity incorporated. And then I was very lucky, um, you know, at, uh, at a point where I started to feel that the process of learning to make movies was uh, getting to be um, not as new for me. And I started feeling a little bit bored with the process. I was very fortunate. Khan Academy reached out to me and they knew something about my passion for education and learning. Um, and I can tell a little bit more about that story later, but they knew a bit about why I might be very passionate about their mission. And that was my moment. Uh, when I got to Khan Academy, I had my, my um, aha moment, my Steve Jobs moment, and I realized really what my mission was in life. And it is about using technology and understanding the science of learning to really help change people's outcomes in their lives. And uh, I started with higher education, and then I moved into professional skill development because that's where my passion lies. So now I switch lanes because uh, I feel that I need, when I switch lanes, I, I feel that I'm making a, a move in the direction of the accomplishment of my mission, my life's mission, and my dream. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it sounds like um, early on, the transitions happened pretty organically for you. Um, mm -hmm. And at this point, is very much driven by your values and your mission. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense, especially knowing you. It seems very much in alignment. Um, One question that you asked, if it's helpful, is about how do I set myself up for success in new roles? And I hope this is just helpful for the audience. This is something that I learned at McKinsey. You can think about your, uh, we, we used to look at business as a, as a grid. There's functions, which are horizontals and there's verticals which are like industries or sectors right so mm -hmm. you know the computer or the tech industry and versus healthcare media uh, so I've worked in several industries what and I've also picked up some skills in certain functional areas so I know operations I know strategy I know some finance I know learning I know and and I be, I am very conscious of the squares on the grid where I have accumulated uh, skill. And you can use those squares on the grid to help you pivot, right? So if you have a functional expertise that can help you move up a vertical, and if you have a vertical ex expertise that can help you move along a functional. So I think of it as a grid mm. that allows me to navigate where I want to find the next opportunity. So for example, when I went to, to Pixar, it was a completely new vertical, and it seemed like a new functional area because I was moving from management consulting into finance. However, I had a lot of experience doing operational thinking and operational work, which was similar to the type of work I'd have to do in finance at Pixar. And also I had a lot of mathematical skills. So I basically pitched to them that I could, I could figure out the rest. Makes sense. So it sounds like it's not, the grid isn't just the label that we've put on the title or the industry. It's also consisting of transferable skills that you can then break down and move exactly. from a grid to grid. Exactly. Um, that's very helpful because I think these days, or the world we live in, 
career switching is so normal mm-hmm. and it's just a skill, you know, just like communication skills or, um, uh, you know, writing business emails. Career switching is a skill we all should get very, very comfortable with. Yep. I agree. And the more that you think through your grid of your verticals and horizontals and where, do, what do you want to play? Some people love to become functionally deep, functional experts uh, on many different areas within a vertical. And that allows you to do things like, uh, you know, really excel in your field and in your, in your industry. Uh, and then there's another approach where you become just an extraordinary expert in a functional, and that allows you to make all these career switches into different, into different verticals, right? And so you can think about it as, as a strategy, really, in terms of the kinds of opportunities you want to unfold for yourself. Um, so I think, um, I think the biggest thing my peers and the young professionals in my network struggle with is knowing what they want especially because we're bombarded with these options and just information overload, which is, you know, which is awesome because we're grateful to have access to these opportunities, but that leads to this analysis paralysis. And so what's your advice on building that self-awareness and figuring out, well, do I want to be an expert? Do I want to be a generalist? Do I want to be a founder, et cetera? It's a great question. I, and to be honest, I think that that question's probably gotten more complicated, just validating uh, the the challenge that existed before COVID nineteen and the the reality of COVID nineteen has I think made that more more difficult because the feeling of risk has uh, accelerated right in a in a in an economy like this. So I I would say personally that if you the most important thing and this is probably going to sound like a pat answer but the most important thing is to really know to seek to know yourself and your values you will make better decisions in your life if you know yourself and you know your values very deeply and if you don't know what your life's mission is yet you will find it eventually if you really seek to know your values and so for me one of my values is around learning for example and i've become to realize that when I am not learning, I literally feel like I'm shriveling inside. Like I'm literally, I, I, I feel like I'm atrophying as a person. It's such a core and primary value. Other values I have are around, say, for example, adventure. And so whether or not I have a very clear picture of exactly what my life's mission is, the more that I know what matters to me most in terms of who I am as a person, it helps me make better decisions. And you can really look at the job that you have and look at the company where you're working and make a decision based on your values. uh, First and foremost, I I really don't think you can go wrong if you use that as your North star. Naomi, do you experience imposter syndrome? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I experience imposter syndrome and I have all of my life. Uh, I, um, yes. How do you tackle it? Tell us more about that. Well, in some ways I would say I don't tackle it. And in some ways I would say that, you know what I would say is that I am constantly working with my imposter syndrome. And what I've learned to do is to work with my imposter syndrome in life rather than to get rid of it. Uh, and I, I really, I, feel so happy for people who don't have one. But for folks like me who have one, uh, it's this voice that sits there and says, like, there's no way you can do this. Uh, you're, you suck at this in ways that other people don't. And uh, what, what business do you have being here? 
that's pretty harsh language to be walking around and trying to do your job with, by the way. And so just a lot of empathy to, to people who share that with me. And the way that I've started to, again, I've seen an evolution in how I work with my imposter syndrome. In the beginning, uh, I would just really muscle through it and uh, just try to be better than the people around me in order to try to prove to myself that I had some right to be there. As I get older and uh, maybe build a little bit more confidence and understanding of what the imposter syndrome is all about, uh, I've started to be a lot more kind to myself and realize I don't have to be better than everybody else around me in order to have the right to be there or the opportunity to belong because, hey, it's okay to not be the best person at something in the room and you really need to be able to be learning and growing in things to have the opportunities that you need to grow and to take risks and explore new explore new jobs, new roles, new careers. So uh, what I've started to do is to really foster my growth mindset, right? Learn the, learn the words. Did I do my best? What is my best? Can I learn to do better? Uh, can I, am I good at that now? Maybe no, but that's just a not yet, right? Um, there's always an opportunity to learn. And, uh, and really looking at now as I, as I even continue to kind of build more skills around this, changing the narrative that really starts the imposter syndrome getting going in the first place. So now I start really looking at it and asking myself, why do I think I'm bad at that thing? Where did I get that from? And can I change the story that I'm telling myself? Because there's this way in which our brains are super plastic. And if we work on the narratives that we tell ourselves, we can really change how we see the world. So now I work on saying things to myself like, like last, a couple of years ago, I, I realized I had an imposter syndrome around sales. I kept saying, I'm not good at sales. I'm bad at sales. Uh, I suck at sales. And I realized, okay, there it goes again. I have to look at it. Why do I think that I suck at sales? Well, it turns out I have an unconscious bias that men are better at sales than uh, women. Mm. And so now I'm just really working with why, where did that come from? Why do I have that? Can I change the narrative? And I literally practice saying to myself every day, I am great at sales. I can learn this process. I know how to sell effectively because I know what selling is. And it's taking me time. I'm still a few years in. I'm not completely there yet, but I know that I can change the way that I think about this. Huh. That's great. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking, I think I felt... Um, I think my imposter syndrome was at the highest uh, in corporate America, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think studies also show that, especially in the first couple of years of their career, women's ambitions and confidence levels go down in corporate mm. America, at least. Uh, I'm not sure about the numbers uh, globally. Um, and for me, becoming a founder has been so liberating because um, I'm aware, actually, I'm a lot more aware, actually, that I don't know most of the things I need to be knowing. But that's sort of part of the job description of the founder, right? Because you right. spend most of your time just learning the skills for the next phase to grow your company. And um, ideally, you should never be knowing, you know, you should never be good at what the next thing is because that means your company is growing and you, you're forced to learn new skills. Um, but I think my, my, impost, my imposter syndrome kicks in when I have to think about oh, I'm, I'm at this big company and I have to get someone else's permission to either get this job or get the permission to be able to do this project that, I, that I'm just going to be so good at, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious, how has your sense of identity shifted um, as you've become a founder? 
And I'm also curious how you view um, workplace structures and people dynamics at bigger companies uh, differently, if you do. Yeah, so let's see. It's interesting because I just want to note that what's really cool about what shifted for you when you became an entrepreneur is that your narrative about what was possible for you or, or why what the value of learning was changed. In in your world of how you look at being a founder, learning is an asset and not knowing and being capable of learning is an asset. Whereas at least the information that you were having about the corporate world is that was not an asset. So it's it's interesting because these narratives really change what's possible for us, right? Um, and they affect how we feel about ourselves. So in, as in just noticing that your experiences uh, in the corporate world is that you felt more like an imposter there, even though I would argue the job you had as a founder was a lot harder. Exactly. So my sense of identity has, has shifted. Uh, it, in many ways, though, I think it is uh, less around the sense of identity and more around the sense of my control over my narrative because the way we see the world so radically affects how we interact with it. And as you know, as a founder, you need to, as you said, you need to be able to learn and do things you've never done before. And the way that you look at that thing radically affects how you interact with it. And so you're constantly working with your narrative around various aspects of where you're going to push your business to, um, risks you're going to take with your company, all of these things that every single time you're doing it, it's the, it's the first time, right? Uh, so my, my sense of writing my story of who I am has gotten a lot stronger and my understanding of the drivers that motivate me and the values that I hold has also gotten a lot stronger. So I would say that the wonderful thing that being an entrepreneur has given me is an extraordinary amount of uh, a, a, an extraordinary center from which to operate of knowing myself and the feeling that I get to write. Uh, I get to write that story of who I am. Can you talk to us a bit more about uh, that story? And again, uh, you can pass it if you think. Um, sure. Okay. Yeah. The well. So, for example, I believe and I feel that I am uh, my purpose in life is really to help help change the professional landscape by making it a more meritocratic place by helping other people to realize their potential to learn and I recognize that that is my center that is going to drive me every decision I want to make is around that core and Every time I hit a roadblock and I don't like that roadblock, then I look at how I can change it. So, for example, recently I was looking at failure and I was looking at how I've had some really how hard it's been as an entrepreneur and how many times I've looked back and felt guilty about how hard it was or places that I didn't manage to lead my team to success and feeling like uh, feeling a sense of guilt. And as I looked at that, um, it's funny because one of my biggest strengths, and this is something that I know about myself from being an entrepreneur and working really hard over the years, is one of my biggest strengths is that I can tackle really hard problems and I do not shy away from going for uh, going for hard and going for unknown and going and doing something that uh, is both technologically and um, and from a marketplace perspective, innovative. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and yet I walk around thinking like, oh gosh, well, you know, this is so hard, all this innovation that we're doing and, you know, maybe I'm not doing it right. Or maybe there's something that I'm doing wrong because it's so hard for me, or I haven't somehow managed to protect my team from how hard it is and all of these sort of this guilt that I have around it. And so I realized recently that that was really holding myself back and that it's funny when you think about it. And this is, I think about sports a lot. So in sports, one of my greatest heroes is Serena Williams. And I heard her talking the other day about how she gets up every morning. She practices every morning. She's famous for her deliberate practice. There's nothing about being one of the greatest athletes at all of all time that you would, any of us would say is probably really easy, you know, and she owns that. And then she said uh, in this little snippet that I heard her talking about is she said, I get up every day you know, I train, it hurts. I feel the pain of my training every day, but you know, that's the life I choose. And so at least what I hear in the way that she's speaking about, you know, the pain that she feels, the ache in her, her, in her bones and her muscles is that she really values the struggle and the strife that she's willing to put herself into and own the challenge that she's really engaging in. And so that's, that's an example of a narrative that I'm rewriting right now is, gosh, you know, I choose the hard path. I like to go for these really hard problems because I know there's a ton of gold there and I want to own how, um, that can make you tired. That can make you stressed. That can feel difficult, but that's the life I choose. And so that's an example of uh, a narrative that I'm working on right now and how it all kind of centers around my core. Mm. Naomi, speaking of um, failure and risks, right? Um, So I I know that you're a very resilient person. Can you talk to us about some risks that you've taken in your life that might not have turned out as you planned and what you've learned from those quote-unquote failures? Even though I think people like us don't really think of failures as failures. Yes, that's actually one of the first things and that makes it hard to answer the question is one of the first things is really changing the way that you think of a mistake, right? And what does a mistake look like? Uh, what does it mean to go out? I think this is how I look at it right now, though, is especially in the world of sales. I think this is one of the reasons why I didn't like sales in the beginning is that you get no's. You get real explicit no's. And uh, those can feel like failures. And so I uh, would go out and just want to swing. I'm always using these um, sports analogies. I don't play sports, so I'm probably going to use all the wrong words. But like, you know, (laughs) you go out and you swing at that ball and you don't make contact. One of the hardest sports to play is uh, is baseball because even the best batters only hit the ball three out of 10 times. And I so identify with that is that that just willingness to swing with everything you've got with all the intent and focus and dedication to hitting that ball that you can, knowing that you're going to miss it a lot. And so that, that experience of being an entrepreneur, especially being in sales and selling into a world where uh, the, what we're selling is new, it hasn't been done before, the tri- types of metrics that we're delivering to our clients around practice and learning and growth sometimes reveal how little growth and learning is happening. And that can be a hard thing to look at. So we know that we're often uh, revealing in the world that we work in and try revealing a lot of what we don't get right. Uh, And that's really a place where we often have to start. And so, you know, it's a hard 
it's a hard process and we're trying to figure it out as we go. So we swing at the ball a lot and we miss a lot. And that's really, that can be really hard. So I think having the guts to get up every day and just keep swinging at that ball um, is probably, probably the story that I think is most helpful to people is it that the risk can exist every day and it can be the risk of just kind of feeling like you fall flat on your face, but knowing that you have the guts to get out there and to keep trying uh, is, is really, <laughs> it, it, it gives you a lot of, um, it gives you a lot of confidence to know that you can fail and that you can fail gracefully. Uh, and then you really just have to ask yourself, and I'm still asking myself this every day is how many failures am I willing to take before I, I give up? And for me, I say to myself, I just am not willing to quit. I won't quit. And, uh, I've, told myself many times in my life when I'm doing really hard things is I'm not going to quit. Somebody's going to have to kick me out. And until they kick me out, I'm going to stay here doing the thing that I'm doing. And I, I think that the the surest path to to failure is quitting. Otherwise, you you basically, you don't fail if you don't quit. Mm -hmm. um, so this is coming from me as a founder in Silicon Valley. Um, I think um, I think there has been this narrative, especially for founders, of don't quit, uh, you know, power through yeah. everything, almost yeah. masochistic. And I think something yeah. I've learned in the last year, year and a half is the importance of knowing when to quit, yeah. right? Uh, because I, I really like your batting analogy, because I think when I was closing my last company, I was thinking uh, precisely about that. I was thinking about, okay, this is my lifetime. This is the time I get on this planet. Uh, do I want to have more batting shots to try to build that company I'll be proud of? About, uh, do I keep pushing and keep trying to make this company work? Or do I quit and then start all over again? Um, so when is the time when quitting was the right thing for you to do? Yeah, it's a great, great, great question. So, and this gets back a lot to perception, right? And what you just said about what is, what is failure? So you may decide that the company that you're running has not been the right instance of what you need to accomplish the mission that you are on. Or there's different kinds of founders, right? Some founders are more driven by creating great businesses and some founders are mission driven. So for myself, I'm obviously very much the mission driven one. And then there's founders who are very much like, oh, I could go and build a company that I'm just going to go make up a really great business opportunity. I'm going to build that because I'm just this entrepreneur. I'm a business builder at heart. Uh, and both are really great things. I'm actually curious, Chara, which one are you? Mission or or business builder? So I actually think I'm both. Um, oh. If you think that's possible. I do. I do. And then I think that what is, what at least that I would say is, at some point, you know, then your last uh, entrepreneurial adventure was an at-bat in itself. And there's a point at which, and I have metrics for my own, for Tribe, if we don't hit them by a certain point, then, and, and this is all based on, are we are we growing? Are we growing at a rate that is giving me confidence that the investment exactly. thesis that we have is the right one, then I'm going to keep going. And if it doesn't, then I will stop it. It'll be hard. It'll be really tough. And I look to you, actually, as a, as a source of inspiration for having the guts to do that and say, all right, I'm going to close the books on this chapter. And I'm going to sit back and ask myself, what did I get wrong? And how am I going to come at this again from another angle? Mm -hmm. 
So I, I think you have to be, this is where we have to be business savvy, right? Uh, is, are we seeing the, are we seeing the results that we need to out of the business that we built? And do we think we have the opportunity from within to pivot it? Or is it better to close, close it down and, uh, and, and really just be operational about it? But at the core, you haven't given up if you haven't given up on, on what it is that you believe is the right thing to do. Uh, it may be building it from within the business that you've built right now, or it may be shutting that down and starting a new, uh, starting a new venture or joining a company or whatever it is. Um, That's but true. You, you really are the center of that mission. And so I don't think that you really have quit. Yeah. I, I also think this can be applied to not just founders, but also professionals, because let's say if you're trying to build a certain career at a company and you're just not getting that opportunity, um, it's very important to keep trying and not give up very quickly. But at some point you have to know that, okay, now it's time to switch and yeah. you're not giving up on the, on the, dream and like like you said you're still the center of that mission and that that career plan exactly but that go (laughs) that go might not have been the go right and you might see that there's structural or other inherent problems in continuing from that angle and like you said if it becomes masochistic and it's not it's not yielding and it's not building and it's just becoming harder and harder uh, then it's probably a time to say, all right, there's got to be an easier way. It's good to be tough and it's good to be really able to do really, really hard things. But as you say, if, if that's just masochism, then there's a problem. <laughs> and I think you're right. You can get really into it and you don't realize um, just how tough things have gotten and how hard you're pushing. But you do need to be able to pull back and just look at the metrics, ask yourself, am I seeing what I need to see to continue betting on this. I, I use the betting analogy a lot in Vegas. Like would I still make if I pulled back, would I still put money on that company? Uh and that that I think is the kind of um what objectivity that you need to be able to evaluate your business. That's funny because that's exactly how I thought about it too. And oh, really? I think yeah. And at some yeah. point I just I realized uh you know the switch went off and I was like, wait, I don't believe in this uh this company anymore. Um, you know, I mean, I, I still believed in the mission and what you were trying to achieve, but right, it was right. just clear to me that this will either stay a small business uh, or actually nothing else. I was the only option, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. that's just not, I just knew I, it wasn't aligned with my personal ambition. Yeah. And I think admitting that was really tough because I had given everything to my company and similar to you, I think I felt the strong guilt around wait, am I disappointing my clients and investors and most of all my teammates who have, mm-hmm. who have believed in me so much? Um, but I think at some point I just thought, you know what, if this company has no big future that I've promised to all of them, then I should give their money back or I should give their time back and I should help them you know, get that right job. Um, yeah. Then they're way better off. Uh, but I think I just, I just had to admit that to myself. I think that took some time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you could have decided that a small business was okay and given folks the option to, to continue on there. But obviously it sounds like that's not your ambition. So you weren't, you weren't willing to accept the small business, which, you know, that is a great, that to me is a great example of living your values and really sticking to your core of what you need in life and what is important to you. It sounds like a really strong value for achievement and impact at scale, right? And you can just feel it. And so, um, 
so you wouldn't be a great CEO of a company that's like a good small business. And good small businesses are wonderful, uh, but that's obviously yeah. not you. Yeah. <laughs> when, yeah. When I moved to San Francisco from Chicago at LinkedIn, um, I went to this dinner party at a colleague's house um, and I met some folks there. And uh, literally every every person that I met whom I really, really grew to admire, I realized they all worked for you on your team. And so, <laughs> uh, so I'm thinking of Thomas, um, uh, you know, and, and other people on your team. Um, so you have not only worked with some incredible leaders at LinkedIn, you've also created some incredible leaders, right? Um, I want to ask you, what are some habits of great leaders um, or, or great high potentials um, that we can all learn from? What are, say, uh, three things that we can start doing today that will help us become more successful? Um, well, first, I have to say thank you for that. That's such a, a, a cool story to tell me, and it, it really makes me so happy. It's uh, true. <laughs> well, so the the first, the, the most obvious things about leaders that we can all see are things like conviction, right? Every great leader that you know has some real conviction, something, some vision, and the stick-to-itiveness or the guts to, to stand behind it and get it done. And I think that's what we all often think about when we think about leaders. What I think makes a great leader, and, and this is what I think your question really comes to, is that those people also really know it's not about them and that it's not, they don't do that path alone. And so they invest in deep and profound ways in the people around them. And there are examples that I see of this in great leaders. So for example, I, uh, you and I both know Brian Frank, uh, he was the VP of sales ops at, uh, at LinkedIn, and he's moved on and, and is exploring new and, and great things now. One of the things that I see him do and see him do consistently is just openly and without a, uh, an agenda, invest in people around him in extraordinary ways. One, looking for, basically looking to make connections with people who he thinks have some kind of talent or some kind of drive that he admires. And then he reaches out simply to get to know them and support them in their careers. And at first, I, I thought that this was when I noticed him doing this, at first, I thought this was like, wow, that's really strategic and really clever. Now that I've known him for years and seen just like the following that he has, I, I really know of no strategy or just way of being in life that is more profound. I mean, he literally has a family of people who care about him deeply. I mean, he's just generated a tremendous amount of love uh, in the community around him because he's helped people grow in their careers in really meaningful ways. And um, the next venture that Brian Frank ever does, I guarantee you, I will, I will step out in every possible way I can to help him be successful in the accomplishment of his dreams. And so he's, he's created this enormous followership I don't think he does that in this transactional way. He's that I've never, ever gotten the impression that uh, Brian Frank is ever asking me for anything in return, but he always makes time for a call and he always reaches out and will help me in any way that I've ever, you know, asked for or needed to give me coaching, giving me advice, uh, introducing me to people who can be helpful in the accomplishment of, of uh, the, the business of building tribe. And so I just think of him as an exceptional leader who really demonstrates the third quality, which is uh, 
just extraordinary investment in the people around you, really building a tribe and really building a community uh, by giving generously and altruistically. Uh, and so I think that's really the ultimate, I think that's the ultimate killer, um, killer skill of a great leader is knowing people and investing in people. I agree. Um, I feel very lucky that I started my career at LinkedIn, where I saw leaders like Brian Frank and Mike Gamson, who, who really defined for me and set the bar for me for what a leader should be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's influenced my smallest decisions uh, when I hire people um, or, uh, uh, you know, so for example, I see myself uh, inclined towards hiring people who are growing into a role because I know they're going to be so hungry and so grateful for that opportunity as opposed to someone who's done the same thing five other times before. Or, yeah. uh, I mean, I love that Mike Gamson took a paternity leave um, uh, at LinkedIn and he would openly talk about how he cooks dinner for his family every night. And that, so that was in Chicago office. And um, that actually, I think, encouraged more dads in the office to be um, equal partners at home. I think it just, it just made it, cool to be a really good partner and dad um so yeah. uh, so I, I i really like all your three qualities completely plus one plus ten um so speaking of investing in people uh so you you've been all about uh mentoring and coaching people as i've said before um what is the best career advice that a mentor has given you you know i really It's funny because there's so much great advice, but really the life-changing advice that I got, and it sounds so simple, uh, was from a friend of mine in who I knew. So I, I got into I got into college from community college. I, I didn't get in through uh, you know the standard means. In fact, I had a really different path to getting my education because I, I never graduated from high school and I was I always this is was the beginnings of my imposter syndrome as I, you know, basically failed out of of high school and and, and didn't make it. And uh for various all kinds of reasons that you don't have to go into this podcast. But I really my my education had become very busted. And so uh, my understanding of things like math was very poor and had managed to make my way through community college, working multiple jobs and got into Berkeley. And I felt like, oh my God, I got into Berkeley. I was so grateful and I worked my butt off and I did really well there. And I, um, I had this friend who was really a mentor to me and she really showed me that that's what it took. It, it took working hard. You know, I, I, this was like the early days of my feelings of guilt about working hard. I felt like, gosh, I must be the stupid one in the room because I have to work so hard, but she was getting all A's and she, I thought she was brilliant and she was working her butt off too. And so that really helped give me the courage to, to work hard and drive for something that I really wanted. And when we got towards the end of our, uh, uh, you know, we're about to graduate. And she was like, well, what are you going to do, Naomi? And I said, well, you know, I, um, I don't know, maybe I'll just stick around here at Berkeley. And she asked me, well, why aren't you going to apply to MIT and Stanford as well? And I said, there's no way that I could ever get into MIT or Stanford. Like I'm a high school dropout. 
And she goes, well, what do you have to lose? And uh, that was probably the best advice ever. I mean, because, you know, I realized she was right. What did I have to lose? I might not have gotten into MIT, but I did. And I never would have gotten into MIT if I hadn't tried. And it's that same question that I ask myself often when I go out and do something risky for tribe is I ask myself, well, what do I have to lose? And can I take that mud on my face? Yeah, sure. I can take that mud on my face. And so am I going to go out and do that? Yeah, sure. I'll go out and do that. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But uh, I really, she really taught me to swing, swing at the ball. Wow. That literally gave me goosebumps when you were talking about it. Oh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> I actually didn't know this. Um, I didn't know the story. And I, I think it somehow makes me respect you even more. Uh, oh, and it also, make, it, it also makes more sense where you just why, why so you're passionate. so resilient <laughs> yeah and just so passionate about helping people to um, learn yeah that's yeah. amazing wow yeah 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 that's why it's deep in my core I would not be here if it weren't for learning to learn and realizing the power of learning in my career and my career trajectory nothing as you said nothing I've been able to achieve came from sitting back and resting on my laurels every single moment uh, has been about learning. And I could not agree with you more that being an entrepreneur feels like needing to be ready to learn anything at the drop of a hat. And, uh, and I love that. If you don't love that, then you won't love being an entrepreneur, but I love that. And um, so, you know, yeah. well, this was uh, a very insightful, very inspiring, very pleasant and enjoyable chat. Uh, thank I'm so you, glad Char. you made. Thank you, <laughs> Naomi, for making time for this. I know how busy yeah. you are. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share with your friends and subscribe to Drive Your Career wherever you get your podcast. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you next week.